0: Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and we're here on PRM, Progressive Radio Network. PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, all kinds of other times elsewhere on the globe. (laughs) I'm still remembering when I was in. uh, Bali calling home. I think I called at 9 in the morning and reached New York at 9 at night. But anyway, oh, and there's a there's a book. I shouldn't talk about it because I don't remember enough about it. <laughs> if you step back and forth across the international dateline, will you stop aging? <laughs> anyway, um, you'll find us here on Mondays and our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com dot com and uh, anybody want to call in today about movies 888 874 4888 and there are a couple of topics I'm backed up about so one of them is groupthink which I didn't uh, maybe let's um, just mention that but I grew up in the Graduated high school in 1959. So I grew up in a the conformist Eisenhower era. And my family was very open-minded, educated. And I subscribed to the Village Voice. I have Stone's newsletter. Listened to Gene Shepard. And so I had windows on to uh, a... Uh, a broader universe than just what was in the New York Times and the Herald Tribune, which we we would get one or the other. My parents preferred the Herald Tribune, just better writing. But my mother observed that it didn't last for her commute into the city, a uh, 20-minute train ride. So she had to switch to the Times because it was thicker. But anyway, <laughs> um, look at what's going on in the world today in politics and culture, and you know, some upcoming guests will talk about that in some more detail. But from my point of view, without, you know, taking sides, whatever that would mean, um, I think there are just a lot of true believers out there, and or people engaged in groupthink. And so... Uh, You can look at this in various fields, um, which I won't name because that'll, uh, you know, raise other questions. But just to think, um, one of them is in physics, and Lee Smolin wrote a book called The Trouble with Physics. And it's about string theory, and string theory went from being obscure there were only, you know, a handful of people doing it, and they were weirdos. Two, you couldn't get a an academic position unless you were doing string theory. And then after about a decade, they begin to notice that it wasn't going anywhere. It never was going to go anywhere. It's not doable. Um, string theory uses equations that can yield uh, 10 to the 500th different answers. <laughs> That's trillions and trillions and trillions of times more than there are particles in the uh, in the universe. So uh, <clears throat> if you're a Big Bang Theory, you'll notice that, I don't remember what season it is, but there's a point where Sheldon gives up string theory. Um, and he was really snide to the female physicist, what's her name? Because she's doing loop quantum gravity, which is an alternative, uh, similar to, but alternative to string theory. And Leslie Winkle. And (laughs) so uh, he's very condescending to her, but then has to give it up uh, himself because he realizes he's not going to get anywhere. So Lee Smolin wrote a book about the, the Trouble with Physics, and um, the um, th- there was another book at the same time by Peter White, <laughs> even more damning. The title of his book is Not Even Wrong, The Failure of String Theory in the Search for Unity in Physical Law. So, not even wrong is a uh, is a, uh, a favored phrase among physicists. Uh, that they, it, I, it comes from some famous physicist. I don't remember who. Not my field, but I sort of just follow it. But one of the chapters in Lee Smolin's book is on the behavior. It, it, the book is very much about the sociology of science. So he gets into the behavior of the string theorists, and they um, marginalize him. He's a loop quantum gravity guy. They marginalize him in the other loop quantum gravity. They won't talk to anybody who's not doing string theory. They won't go to uh, any conferences unless it's string theory. They won't invite People from other points of view to their conferences. Even if these people are doing parallel work that might greatly benefit, oh, you know, then maybe we could learn from that. Nope. They won't talk to them, won't have anything to do with them. That's the sign of a true believer. So <laughs> I'll go into this in a future show, but let me just uh list this uh quickly. So um the how you how you can identify groupthink and point being I'm not in physics, but I am in academia, you know. And I noticed some years ago when the we were late to the party. We we got to the party when it was already over, but we had a dean of liberal arts who hired a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of structuralists and uh, very nasty people. And they they're true believers. They won't talk to anyone. You know, they'll attack people who are not part of their cabal, but they won't uh, interact with them. So characteristics are seven of them, uh, according to Lee Smolin. Tremendous self-confidence, leading to a sense of entitlement and of belonging to an elite community of experts. <laughs> right. Boy, didn't the post structuralists on my campus see themselves as elite. An unusually monolithic community with a strong sense of consensus, It's interesting. I got interested enough in uh, post-structuralism to to read in the field and then to read some of the books critical of it. And one of the things is that they don't think for themselves. I mean, they, those that are in the groupthink mold, which is most of them, because no one would arrive at this on their own. I mean, it's totally lunatic theories. But... um, when If there's something that's obviously bonkers in the theory, no one will point that out until a big wheel in the field points it out, and then they all jump on, oh, yeah, that's bonkers. Uh, didn't, you, didn't you always know that? Um, so unusually monolithic communities. Uh, these views seem related to the existence of a hierarchical structure in which the ideas of a few leaders dictate the view, viewpoint strategy and the direction of the field. Nobody there's thinking for themselves, they're all following, you know, the leaders. Number three, in some cases, a sense of identification with the group akin to identification with a religious faith. <laughs> that's certainly true of the, a lot of the post-structuralists I've encountered. Number four, disregard for and disinterested in ideas opinions and work of experts who are not part of their group i i noticed years ago i uh, <clears throat> did a masters in architectural theory at the university of pennsylvania and no, there, was, there nobody was doing theory uh i would i got to new york and it's well i'm doing architectural theory well, what's that like architectural criticism uh Theory didn't exist until the field was established in the United States by Peter Eisenman, who we have to credit for uh, you know, creating an entire body of thought, an entire field. Uh, not just a body of thought. He had his own linguistic theories, but he created the field. And then these theorists started popping up, and they were all uh, linguists, and they were all uh, lockstep uh, working with De Sassure. I don't think any of them read De Sassure, but they they called themselves semiologists, and the articles they would write, the first half of the article would explain semiology, which they would have gotten from some somebody else's essay summarizing it, and then apply it to uh second half of the article would apply it. For example, on a Renaissance Palazzo's the windows alternate A, B, A, B. You know, two different windows alternating. You need five pages of semiological theory to notice that the windows are alternating A, B, A, B. Until finally, uh, after a decade of this, somebody important enough. So I would talk to these people and I would say, well, <clears throat> um, you know, why do not you guys look at Marila Ponte? No, you know. Uh, we we all we all operate in lock, lockstep. We don't look at anybody outside the uh, the current group. Finally, somebody important in the field wrote an essay that it wasn't going anywhere, and they all you know dropped it like a hot potato. So disregard for ideas outside of their community. Six, a tendency to interpret ev- evidence optimistically to believe exaggerated or incorrect statements or uh, of results and to disregard the possibility that the theory might be wrong uh, until some bigwig points it out, and then they all jump on that bandwagon. Seven, a lack of appreciation for the extent to which a research program ought to involve risk. Um, you know, not, they can't be wrong until they all... You know, abandon ship and say, who us? We never, you know, whatever. Um, and a couple more uh, points. It turns out that sociologists have no program, no problem recognizing this phenomenon. It afflicts community of highly credentialed experts who, by choice of circumstance, communicate only among themselves. There's a literature describing this phenomenon, which is called. Groupthink. The article on groupthink in um in Wikipedia is not as good as it should be. Um but look up look up Lee Smolin's The Trouble with Physics. Um so groupthink, according to sociologists, overstates its invulnerability or high moral sense, <laughs> collectively rationalizes the decisions it makes. Humanizers or stereotypes outgroups has a cultural uniformity where individuals censor themselves and others. Uh, I remember once, um, you know, modern architecture has its problems. Uh, talk about something being, a lot of it being sterile. Talk about the anonymous glass boxes uh, dominating cities around the world. And it's gotten a lot better in the past decade, but from the uh from the sixties through the eighties uh pretty bad stuff and a lot of architecture was really off the tracks and i i'm I'm an architect teach architecture study with some of the top people of the twentieth century, but I also approach architecture from a very broad cultural point of view and, as a result, um, can be critical of it. And um, so I was with a colleague who was interested in ideas, and I was being critical, and he said, John, you know, you're a traitor to architecture. And I'm thinking, what? what, what you know, what's this guy thinking? Well, you know if you if you don't if you if you wanna be a knee jerk conformist fine, but if you want to consider yourself uh a critical theorist uh you've gotta be open to uh looking at you know some of the points of view here anyway that's a group think we'll talk more about that in the future, but I want to pick up on something I didn't get to a couple of shows back, <laughs> the movie Lucy. Um, so from Wikipedia, Lucy is a 1914, I'm sorry, 2014. Lucy is a 2014 English-language French science fiction action movie written and directed by Luc Besson and produced by his wife, Virginie besson Celia, for his company Europa Corp. The film was shot in Taipei, Paris, and New York City. It stars Scarlett Johansson, Morgan Freeman, etc. Johansson portrays the title character, a woman who gains psychokinetic abilities when a nootropic drug is absorbed into her bloodstream. So uh, the movie starts in the streets of Taipei. She's an American. Lucy's an American student. She's uh, uh, doing some work there. She has a good-for-nothing boyfriend, who uh, also American, who she you know knows is good-for-nothing and is a total con man. And they bump into each other on the street, and he says, Listen, I need a big favor. Uh, take this briefcase uh, into the... Um, into that office building ask for so and so uh they'll take the briefcase uh but I can't do it I can't tell you why and you know she said, no I'm not going to do that well you know I, they paid me $1000 to do it I'll give half of you here's $500 she's well, well, you know $500 to deliver but there's something wrong here he he snaps a handcuff on her so she's handcuffed to the briefcase so she has to go in. She goes, while she's in there, she, while he's at the window, and blam. <laughs> he gets shot in the back of the head. Well, she's stuck. And turns out there are um, plastic tubes, pardon the language, sort of looking like, in, you know, condoms, stuffed with a blue powder. And this is some exotic new drug which they're going to surgically put in uh, the hairs and the abdomens of four or five other people. And they're going to fly to uh, New York, Paris, London, Rome type of thing. And um, when I get there, the the drugs will be surgically removed. So they're smugglers. They're mules. (coughs) And... um, one thing leads to another uh the uh the drug dealers bad guys uh beat her up kick her in the stomach, burst the thing, and this new exotic drug uh gets released into her system and it's giving her superpowers and what it does they is the the plot line is uh, we cut between her and Morgan Friedman, who's a neuroscientists has this theory we only use 12% of our brain which you know you hear everywhere who knows what that means Uh, it's not really supported idea but that's the premise of the movie and so he's lecturing about this and we cut back and forth between him lecturing and Lucy going to this uh, ordeal and what happens is As a result of this drug getting absorbed in her system, she now uh, is bingo, 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 ratcheting up. She can use 20% of her brain. She can use 30% of her brain. So uh, she has no trouble escaping the bad guys, uh, going to a hospital, getting the stuff surgically removed. Um, She becomes amoral. she is evolving to a higher state, and she identifies Morgan Friedman as someone who theorizes about what's going on for her and reaches him by telephone, and she says, I have read all of your work, and he says, well, I'm flattered, but I doubt that. She says, you want me to quote it? <laughs> all 1,984 pages of it. Um, and you're right. Uh, uh, you gain these powers when uh, you can use you know, more than 12% of your brain. I can control the electronics in your hotel room, which she does remotely from Malaysia or wherever she is. So the bad guys are after her. Uh, she is developing more and more of these powers. When she hits 100%, what's going to happen? Um, she can go backwards and forwards in evolution. She's exploring the meaning of life. And the, the movie, the problem with a movie like this is um, what, what happens when you reach, you achieve, uh, what word shall we use, Evolutionary. You you achieve you achieve an evolutionary level of uh a thousand, a million, a billion times our whatever. You're smarter, brainier, faster, uh you have I like to I teach a course in this kind of stuff. I like to say no point out to my students that uh let's say we as uh Biologically, Homo sapiens that we are now today, very roughly, is about 100,000 years. Um, Writing is, you know, you can look at this and that, but let's just five or 10,000 years. Let's say 5,000 years. Um, And that was maybe 1% of people could read and write. And today, you know what, 80, 90% of people can read and write. Uh, So, okay, 90% of, let's say everybody, everybody today can do something, read and write, which is pretty sophisticated stuff. I mean, it's pretty involved, that nobody could do 6,000 years ago. What other ability? But everybody had the ability. You take a 6,000-year-old um, fetus that got preserved in amber or whatever, Jurassic Park, um, put it in a womb, uh, give birth to it, grow it up, send it to school. And it'll learn to read and write just like any kid today would. All the DNA, neuropaths, biologically, it's all there. Just no one had ever done it. And, of course, in not doing it, we had not— stimulated those paths. But uh they were the potential to do it was there, just like the potential in a newborn uh can't read or write. And if no one teaches them they're not going to learn to read or write. But if they are taught, you know, they do, and ninety percent, let's say everybody today, um, unless they've got some problem, uh can read and write. So okay. Uh Everybody can do this incredible thing. Everybody had the ability to do that. But until 6,000 years ago, nobody did it. Nobody could do it. But they had the ability to learn to do it. What other abilities (laughs) do we have that we haven't noticed? (laughs) You know? It's not what will evolve, that may be the case, but are there other abilities as incredible as reading and writing that everybody has, but nobody knows they have it? (laughs) So, okay, so we get a movie like Lucy, and she's going to develop these abilities, whether She's a developing uh, ability that we all potentially have, or you could do it another way. Say maybe she's doing a uh, uh, hundred thousand years of evolution, you know, in, a, in two or three days. Actually, I think she says I have less than twenty-four hours to live. So, uh, in less than twenty-four hours, what's that going to be like? What are the you know what is this power going to be? What's it going to look like? What is she going to be able to do? Well, of course, she can uh, telekinetically take all the guns and knives out of the hands of uh, bad men who are coming to toward her and flip them up to the ceiling where they stick. You know, she can reverse gravity, uh, stuff like that. Well, I think she does it with people too. <laughs> she has them slam up against the ceiling. So, okay, that's dramatically... It's like, you know, in Star Trek, where we encounter other civilizations with things we've never dreamed of. Um, What is it? Um, What's the tagline for Star Trek? Uh, You know, encountering new worlds or whatever. And where, when there's a problem, they're resolved by... William Shatner having a fist fight (laughs) with some alien. And uh, that resolves the issues that are arisen by these uh, new stages of uh, galactic evolution. So, okay, so what is, you know, so Lucy has these powers. And they try to explore interesting stuff. She encounters evolution. She can travel uh, back in time um stuff like that and but the interesting thing is it's not bad you know given that you know what i would say if i were doing star trek and you know i was the producer i would say let's go find some of the most imaginative people on the planet whether it's Futurists like Ray Kurzweil, computer theorists like Danny Hillis or Stephen Wolfram. Um, the, uh, the There's a guy who wrote The Bible of Computer Programming. I forget his name. He had a big article just to him in the New York Times. i got to finish reading it. Um, people in literature, you know, Norman Mailer, Susan Sontag, uh, that tells you how old I am. <laughs> those people are no longer alive. But to me, those are the the literary minds. Uh, the artists, the Picassos. There's a quote from, uh, that I just encountered. I don't know if it's apocryphal from Picasso. Pretty good quote. And he says, computers are useless. They can only provide answers. <laughs> the issue is, what are the questions, Right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. They know the answer. It's 43. (laughs) Problem is they don't know the question. It turns out the Earth was a computer built by some alien race uh, to to find the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And the answer is 43. But they forgot to ask the question. Uh, actually, no, I think it's 42. Sorry. 43 is an episode of Big Bang Theory. <laughs> oh. Anyway, um, so here's this issue. We encounter these transcendent realms. What are they like? Oh, I would uh, put on my list uh, Buddhist uh, thinkers. Robert Thurman, who said he'll come on the show, but I haven't been able to get him down. But you, you look in Buddhist texts of, uh, you know, descriptions of enlightenment and descriptions of uh, miracles performed by the Buddha, uh, these jeweled worlds of jewels. Um, you know, what are these different worlds? I've, I've got a novel that I've spent. <laughs> is there anybody out there who does not have a novel or screenplay on their laptop. <laughs> it's been there for more than a decade, right? <laughs> Mine's been there for about 20 years. I work on it occasionally. And um, it um, I have a woman protagonist. It's very much modeled on um, modeled on the Pelican Brief, which uh Who's the author of that? Anyway, uh, in the Pelican Brief, this young law student, uh, two Supreme Court justices are killed in the same night, murdered. And Washington's in shock. And this uh, young woman, her law professor, says, well, here's what you do. Find out what's coming through the pipeline that these two justices would have a vote on that judicial pipe. You know, it's going through the lower courts. So It'll to get to the Supreme Court. Somebody these two justices are going to vote to make a majority for an outcome that somebody doesn't like. If they can eliminate these two guys and get some other, other people appointed, uh uh it's in the interests of this obviously the bad guy who arranged these murders, uh, uh, to um, you'll find out who did it. So Julia Roberts is the young student, law student, and she figures it out. She writes a brief. She sends it to somebody in Washington. It gets to the bad guys, and they try to blow up her car, and they blow up her law professor, who's also her boyfriend, uh, while they're at it instead. Now she's on the run. And she's got, she can't, no one can help her. She's going to call the FBI. That's who she sent her her uh, findings to. And obviously somebody in the FBI got got this to the bad guys. And um, they're, um, you know, she can't trust them to help her. So she has to identify the bad guys before they kill her. So that's the structure of my novel. Uh, there's a murder. there's this young woman, she's in New York, she's in New York underground culture, which I've got to update because it's all based on 20 years ago. But she goes back to her East Village apartment, now it should probably be Williamsburg, disguises herself, assumes an old identity, and now she can move in these sort of, the circles of the bad guys to identify and deal with whomever's after her. And whoever the bad guys are, who have this nefarious, um, they're actually funding a think tank that's going to do bad things. She has to stop them. But long story short, she's used. She takes magic mushrooms. She's a shaman, and uh, she encounters these other planets. And I describe these other worlds. Well, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for in these movies. You know, these other worlds, these other realms. So, oh, I would uh, put Michael Harner in my group, who's a uh, who's a uh, leading Western shaman and does shamanic workshops. I would have um, Carlos Castaneda. Uh, is he still alive? I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm not, you know, I would have all these people be consultants to my Star Trek about what could worlds look like that are beyond ours. Freeman Dyson. Freeman Dyson gets used. <laughs> Freeman Dyson worked on Project Orion. Where they're going to build this big, it was a Navy project. They were supposed to be going to do it. They're going to build a big spaceship and it would be, powered by atomic bombs. They had, you know, dozens of atomic bombs in the ship. And they would let one out the bottom and blow it up and it would push the ship. (laughs) They had this whole, all this study for why it wouldn't incinerate the ship. Uh, (laughs) And uh, they could go buzzing around the solar system at very high speeds this way. And (laughs) well, you know, and then Uh, John F. Kennedy entered into the uh, atmospheric testing ban. No more testing of uh, nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. So then they were tested on the ground, and now they're not supposed to be tested at all. I think North Korea is the only place that up until recently was doing it. But anyway, so then uh, Freeman Dyson goes to work on designing starships, that would be powered by hydrogen bombs. So you put, a, you know, a thousand hydrogen bombs in this thing and you let them out the bottom of the ship and blow them up and it pushes the ship and it can go to other solar systems. can gain serious speed. And uh, they have a big uh, spring-loaded pusher plate in the thing to absorb the shock so it wouldn't flatten everybody against the bottom of the ship. Actually... I think today you'd probably just put uh a i in the thing and uh you know send uh robots and sensors, but at that time they still wanted to get people in there. another Freeman Dyson idea which does appear in a star trek is uh it's called a dyson sphere where uh, as we start using serious amounts of energy, not only do we run out of fossil fuels we uh run out of um we far exceed the amount of solar energy reaching the earth, and we run out of the um heavy water in the oceans to uh power uh fusion power plants. So where do we get more energy? And obviously the sun, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the sun's energy goes in all directions. Only a tiny amount of it reaches the Earth. But what if you were to dismantle a planet Jupiter and make a big sphere the size of the Earth's orbit around the Sun? It could capture all of its energy. So that's called a Dyson sphere. And astronomers look for them because it's a logical step for a uh, advanced civilization to take. And then another one is uh, for a really lot of room um, he's been exploring photosynthesis as a means of uh, converting solar energy. if you made this Dyson sphere, the energy hits the inside of the sphere. How do you get it into a useful form? And photosynthesis is pretty efficient. And so he's exploring genetically developing plants that can grow on uh, comets, of which there are billions of them in the outer reaches of the solar system, to uh, to to grow a lot of <laughs> to grow a lot of vegetation. I'm not sure what it's used for, but uh, it's a beautiful book about him and his then estranged son, called the Starship and the Canoe. I'll go through the whole story sometime. It's a great story, and. Um, Uh, Freeman Dyson and his son, George Dyson, who's now an important science journalist. But anyway, uh, uh, so, you know, someone like Freeman Dyson to speculate. So you get this committee of these people to talk about what could be really interesting that Star Trek Voyager might encounter, or Enterprise, I guess the ship is, is a later one. And so Lucy has that problem. What does, once she's in this 100% of her neurons she can use, like, does that mean something? Well, we assume it does. She has these telekinetic powers. She can control evolution. She can control her DNA. She can... uh, um, merged with a computer. What happens? What is this like? What does it tell us? What do we learn? And interesting, what the movie does is communicate a lot of this visually. You know, there's a lot of uh, scientific mumbo jumbo, particularly expressed by the Morgan Freeman character, who's the scientist who can explain all this. But a lot of it is visual. So what does that remind us of? And, of course, 2001, which was the defining science fiction movie of its day. So before that, there was, what well, was it, Journey to the Moon, which was pretty realistic. That was considered, you know, sophisticated science fiction. And then, um, of course, that time we're all reading Willie Lay's book, rockets, missiles, and space travel, and we're buying the story that Wernher van Braun made V2 rockets for the Germans because he had to, but his real mission was to go to the stars or at least the planets. And in fact, he did the engineering for the Saturn uh, Gemini um, and Saturn rockets Atlas, Gemini, Saturn. It got us to the moon. And um, so, you know, we'd follow him. And then Chesley Bonstell was the artist for all these people. And he would do these illustrations of, you know, what it would look like uh, to be on a planet that had two suns or what it looked look like to be on the moon looking back at the Earth or to be on a, uh, on a moon of Jupiter looking down at Jupiter. Turned out he didn't realize how crisp it could be, which we, we did then with the Hubble telescope and the flyby uh, missions. But anyway, um, then we got Forbidden Planet, pretty sophisticated stuff, and it had a psychological basis. And then we got 2001. So, uh, in 2001, our intrepid crew, or what's left of them, one astronaut, the rest have been done in by HAL, make it to the moon, one of the moons of Jupiter. And it's fuzzy what's going on, but there are these monoliths, sentinels, that presumably would have been left by a maybe a galaxy uh colonizing civilization that's spreading intelligence, so opening scene there are these hominid apes, you know human ancestors looking very ape like, and they are um battling each other. And then they look up and there's this, suddenly this monolith, this thing that's about, oh, what, 8 feet by 2 feet by 15 feet tall, just pure geometric solid. One of the apes touches it and he tosses a... um, a bone that he had been fighting with as a weapon into the air, and it cuts to a satellite. So long story short, this um, sentinel or monolith embedded intelligence into us, and that's how we got civilization, which led us to space travel. They find another one on the moon, and it's pointing to yet another one, on a moon of Jupiter, and we got to go there and find out what's up. So our last remaining astronaut, the rest having been done in by the out-of-control computer Hal, arrives and we switch to a sort of graphic, special effects graphics dream world. So our astronaut is aging and eating a meal in a Uh, French uh, traditional interior. Uh, We see light shows. And what's this all mean? And the point is that meaning, if you explain it, that's verbal. These visuals are what it means. That famous story where Chopin uh, plays a composition and a young woman says, that was beautiful. Tell me, what did it mean? And Chopin sits down and plays it again. <laughs> it is. It doesn't mean. Um, or music is its own meaning. Visual arts are their own meaning. So um, and then it, gets, it does get literal at the end where the final scene is a fetus in a pretty developed fetus in a bubble Hovering above the Earth, looking down. So, perhaps our astronaut has become the star child, and uh, the next our next evolutionary step. There's uh, apparently, if you're really into this, you read Arthur C. Clarke's books. There are a couple books, and it's not the one based on the movie, but later books, uh, also based on the same story, tell a little bit more what it was about. But I think, you know, the visuals are enough. They are what it was about. So my thinking about this began with the 1932 movie, The Mummy, Boris Karloff. And Uh, In that movie, um, there's—first of all, interestingly, this movie created the genre. So when we see mummy movies to this day, they're always that plot line. Just like Night of the Living Dead created the modern zombie and Z Nation, Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead— All the zombie movies, Z, all of that same premise. A virus has uh, infected people. They want to eat other people or their brains. If they bite you and don't devour you, you get infected with the virus and you become a zombie. And there's a lot of zombies out there and uh, they lose their self-personalities, and you have to kill them. Um, And so the genre of The Mummy, um, The Mummy, Boris Karloff, whomever, he's in Hotep in, uh, in a recent Mummy movie. Let's see if I can find that one. 1994. No. It's another one. Anyway, um, He's a priest. He's in love with this woman. Uh, She dies or their love is illicit. They're both executed. But he is, uh, because of what he did, was so sacrilegious. He is um, mummified alive and he'll stay alive forever in his mummification for eternal torment. But some archaeologists let him out. And... So what he needs to do is um, find a contemporary woman who's maybe even a descendant of his ancient Egyptian lover, kill her, revive her, imbue into her the soul of his um, mummified dead lover, and the two of them will be immortal and hobnob with the gods. So what strikes me is, um, in the um, 30, 1932 film and all the subsequent ones, this woman doesn't want to be killed, <laughs> and have uh, uh, be resurrected as his uh, as his long dead Egyptian lover, and be immortal and hobnob with the gods. She wants to go back to her a uh, home in New Jersey with the white picket fence and half kids with her with her husband. So I had a, a Hollywood uh acquaintance and I complained, uh why why isn't there at least one mummy movie in which uh you know, okay, let's let's do the thing and and become immortal and hobnob with the gods. And my acquaintance said Actually, I'm working on one. <laughs> so, uh, cool. But anyway, um, th- you know, what What are the possibilities of other realities? So another movie, the two other movies that come to mind are Limitless. And apparently it was a TV series, which I missed. But Limitless is a 2011 American science fiction thriller film directed by Neil Berger and written by Leslie Dixon, based on the novel The Dark Fields by Alan Glynn. The movie stars Bradley Cooper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera Robert De Niro. The film follows Edward Moore, a struggling writer who is introduced to a nootropic drug called NZT-48. i got to look up nootropic. This is the second nootropic drug which gives him the ability to fully utilize his brain and vastly improve his lifestyle. (laughs) So uh, our character, what's his name? Hang on. Edward Mora. So Edward is a smart but kind of disorganized, dissolute writer. He's got a big contract for a book that's due, you know, like, the end of the week, and it's been two years, and he's got nothing done. And he hangs out in bars, and his girlfriend dumps him. She says, look, I really like you, but (laughs) this ain't going to work. You're not going anywhere. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Bumps into, I think, her brother, and he's involved with some— a pharmaceutical company, but they've got an illicit drug. And somehow or other, he's got a supply, and he gives Edward one. Edward takes it, and zap! He's super focused. He can do anything. He goes home, and his fingers fly across the keyboard. He writes his novel, brings it in to the publisher, who can't believe it. She reads the first two pages while he's sitting there, and she says, I think this is going to work. And... uh, He goes on to this and that, and then it expands from there. He gets a supply of the drug from—oh, the bad guys, of course, kill his brother-in-law, but he gets the drug, and it's a limited, but supply to last a while. Now what to do? So, um, well, you know, let's get some money so that I can do things. So he becomes a stockbroker. He can pick stocks. He's a super genius. And he's fast and can think fast, compute. And then let's become seriously powerful. And I think the movie ends with him. uh, You know, Robert De Niro is after his ability. De Niro gets the drug. Uh, um, He is running for senator. uh, And it ends there. But what do you do with these abilities? One more movie before we wrap up. The same uh, same idea is Wolf. Wolf is a 1994 American romantic horror film directed by Mike Nichols and starring Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, James Spader, etc. Music, da-da-da. So, in Wolf... Um, uh, do I have the? What's the name of the character? Okay, I'm gonna call him Jack Nicholson. So Jack Nicholson is the editor at a small prestigious publisher, and it's the company's being bought by a um, by a big conglomerate, and he's going to be pushed out. So he's kind of meek and mild mannered. Uh, he uh, doesn't fight back. You know, they're going to ruin the publishing house. Um, One night he's out driving in the country and he hits a wolf. And the wolf is lying in the road. He stops, gets out of his car, goes over to it. It jumps up and bites him. And of course, it was a werewolf. And slowly he starts developing these superpowers. Yes, senses of smell, hearing. He can hear conspiratorial conversations throughout the building. He can smell where people have been the night before. And slowly he, you know, comes into focus. He's going to fight back. And there's twists and turns, but in the final scene, he and Michelle Pfeiffer, who is... Uh, also become a werewolf, turn into their wolf selves and leap into the woods. So more about that in a future show. Let's wrap up. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries every Monday, 10 a.m. at PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network. And be sure to look up our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week.